Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, FP's economics podcast. Every week, we take a couple of data points. We use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor, with you in Berlin, Germany. Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist and Columbia University professor, is with us, as always, this time in Davos. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. Since we did that segment on snow, I, I've always been thinking about ski resorts. Is it? Is there snow over there in Davos right now or not? Yeah, a bunch fell in the last in the last 48 hours. So it's it's uh, it's treacherous as ever and, you know, the world's CEOs and bright young crypto wannabes are sliding around <laughs> as best <laughs> as best they can trying not to kill themselves. Everyone is everyone is wearing ridiculously com, you know, ridiculously combined combinations of suits and snow boots and God knows what else. It's no, it's quite the it's quite the show. Hmm. I hope you got good boots yourself. We're going to talk about something tied to the news this week, and uh, the data point there is three, as in three years, which is the amount of time it's been since the COVID pandemic started. At least tracing back to when China realized it had a kind of big mess on its hands and announced it to the world. So yeah, three years in, and here we are, and China still has a kind of mess on its hands. Newly released satellite images are painting a grim picture of China's ongoing battle against the spread of COVID. So just how bad is the situation? Last week, Chinese health officials said that nearly 90% of people in one of the country's most populated provinces were infected with COVID. The images reportedly show larger crowds gathering outside local crematoriums and funeral homes across the country. So we wanted to kind of dig in and focus on China here and try to figure out, yeah, what the pandemic has meant for its economy, what it means for it now, because it's still an ongoing story. So, Adam, we've talked before about China's zero COVID policy, but I figured we could start maybe with a very basic question, which is, you know, enough time has passed since now China's reversed that policy. So can we say that that China's zero COVID policy was a mistake? Is that a safe thing to say now? I think it's easy to conclude that, right? Because I think this sudden retreat from zero COVID in the last, well, it's really you know, barely more than a month, um, is, is the most severe, the most shambolic turn in Chinese policy since the beginning of the reform period. It's really catastrophic from that point of view. But I think if you look back, that's really not a fair judgment, or rather it's just not a very precise judgment because... I mean, zero COVID was obviously the, the way to go early on. And with the first variants of the disease, they were not so infectious that shutdowns, lockdowns, social distancing, all of that didn't actually work. And the Chinese demonstrated that it could work. And, and there, the tragedy for them is that the rest of the world failed. 
And out of that then came the Omicron variant in the fall of 2021 um, out of South Africa and Botswana, where it was first identified. And that, I think, is really where they run into serious trouble because that's just so infectious that it will overrun any potential you know, effort to contain it through social distancing and whatever. And I think that's really where you have to say the failure sets in because at that point, the Chinese should clearly have pivoted towards recognizing that zero COVID through social distancing and social discipline was not going to work against Omicron and they should at that point have doubled down the vaccination. And the disaster is that as recently as the spring of 2022, only 20% of over 80s had had two jabs and a booster, which is what you need with the Chinese vaccines. The Chinese vaccines are not going to prevent you getting sick, but they will keep you out of hospital and will keep you alive if you've had two plus a booster, a recent one. And um, they just fail to provide that to the most vulnerable group. And even now, they're only up to 40% of over 80s. Only 40% of over 80s actually have anything remotely like full vaccination cover. And their ambitious target is to reach 90% by the end of January, which you would say is you know well overdue. So that's, I think, where the real failure lies in the the just ridiculously slow-moving response to what was a shift in the parameters of the entire equation, because Omicron, you can't effectively fight with social distancing. So now China is dealing with outbreaks across the country. And that is, despite there not being lockdowns, there are economic repercussions to this kind of widespread outbreaks in the absence of full vaccination, as you point out. So what is the outlook right now for the Chinese economy? I mean, will they be able to do stimulus and yeah, just more broadly, you know, we've been talking about China's broader economy struggles with its real estate sector. Uh, you know, we talked about how it may even be collapsing. I mean, has that been stabilized in any sense? Yeah, there's a really interesting political story here. And I think we're still trying to get the measure of the changes in personnel that are going on in Beijing right now. There's clearly a softening of the stance in foreign policy. And in economic policy, too, we may be seeing something similar with uh, Liu He. She's confidant hitherto, but who is also a very conservative force in economic policy, who who pushed um, for the stabilization of the property market for a crackdown on tech, giving way to Li Chang, who may be more of an opportunistic, go-getting um, kind of advocate of more stimulus. And what we have certainly are beginning to see is a softening of the the so-called three red lines policy on the property sector. So these were the limits on um, leverage, financial leverage that were introduced in 2020 in a rather aggressive effort to prick the property bubble. The idea being that unless Beijing did this, um, it would lose control of you know the flywheel on the Chinese economy and it would get caught into a kind of boom-bust cycle which the regime would find difficult to control. So the, 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 the effort to stabilize made sense, but it, it came at a terribly bad moment because essentially it intersected with the collapse of the zero COVID policy and the escalation of tension with the United States. So it made for a very toxic combination. And I think we may be, we are seeing a, a distinct softening. Now, this isn't going to be enough, most likely, to save the most prominent victim of the crackdown, which is Evergrande, you know, indebted to the tune of about $300 billion. Much of that, of course, owed to domestic creditors and to people who've advanced money to build houses, which, well, apartments, which aren't going to get finished now 
will only get finished after the bankruptcy is worked through. But overall, there seems to be a distinct um, weakening of the tough line that the Xi administration had previously taken. And the upshot of all of this is that the we expect a pretty serious rebound in growth. So, I mean, the Chinese official numbers are you know, attracting more and more skepticism. But I think most outside observers think the Chinese economy will grow by only somewhere between 2.7 and 3% in 2022, which is lamentably slow by Chinese standards. That's by far and away the worst performance um, since the reform period began. And what we're expecting in 2023 is a return to growth rates of between 4 and 5.5%, 5.5% significant, because that was the target that was officially announced for 2022, which is not going to be met. Um, and there's a number of larger Chinese provinces which are projecting growth in the coming year of 5 to 6%. So that would be a pretty considerable recovery, and we should look out for the targets that are announced at the National People's Congress in March, you know, one of the two famous twin meetings that take place after the Chinese New Year and give a sense of direction to the regime. So just so I understand that correctly, to the extent that there's going to be new stimulus, it, it takes the form of allowing this real estate sector to kind of reinflate, like sort of getting out of the way of this this bubble that they were trying to prick beforehand. I mean, it's not really where they want to go um, because the mm. aim of the game was to shift the balance of the Chinese economy away from its heavy dependence on credit stimulus and the real estate sector, which had come to account for about 25% of GDP and was vastly overgrown. But the problem is if they, I mean, the, the real estate sector collapsing in the way it has been with the property sales going down by, you know, really dramatic percentage points, prices falling. I mean, they can't really allow that to go on for much longer because it, it acts as a really powerful drag on the economy. And if the aim of the game is to stabilize and stimulate, the temptation will be to use that same instrument, not just to stabilize, but to stimulate. The reason why they might be really pressed to do this is the youth unemployment rate, which is really alarmingly high, you know, hovering around 20%, the entire cohorts of people leaving um, high school and college who have entered this labor market disrupted by the zero COVID policy and the the consolidation policies pursued since 2020. And so I think there's a sense that they need to put the pedal to the metal. And if they do that, the easiest thing to do is to you know revive this construction sector. It is not far from ideal and in a sense perpetuates their problems and will probably cause at some point them to have to redress the balance again. The much more promising strategy would be to focus on trying to boost consumption and and um, to do so by, you know, uh, allowing wages to increase by by creating something a more adequate welfare state. One of the great dramas that's playing out in China right now is who actually pays for COVID treatment, which is hotly contested by Chinese health insurers. So all of those kind of measures will be better for the standard of living and will create a more balanced pattern. But given the urgency of the situation, hmm. the likelihood is, as a well, they'll they'll reach for the quickest fix. Um, and and it's, it has to be said that without a stabilization in the real estate sector, consumption isn't going to recover anyway because people have too much wealth at stake. Yeah, and yet despite it all, you mentioned growth rates potentially of 5 6 7%, and it sounds like a pretty healthy kind of rebound from even this kind of the throes of the pandemic. So, yeah, what are the implications for the global economy? It sounds like good news for the West, maybe more to export. But yeah, what does that actually mean? And maybe particularly for Europe, what do you think? 
I, I think so. I mean, um, it certainly adds further doubt, I think, to the forecasts of a global recession that many of us were worried about a few months ago. China comes back. It will ease bottlenecks in supply chains um, because zero COVID was creating a huge amount of uncertainty. The sector which will most directly benefit and on a giant scale is tourism um, because what Chinese have not been able to do is travel and since the 8th of January they have been able to. And they are by far and away the most important driver of global tourism. I mean, in 2019, 150 million travelers went abroad from China. They spent over $255 billion. That's twice the amount that American tourists spend, who are the second largest group of spenders in foreign tourism. A lot of that is to Asia. It doesn't come to the West. Not very much of it comes to the United States at all, but it does tend to go to Europe on a large scale. And in 2022, those figures were down 95%. So that huge, I mean, we're talking a quarter of a trillion dollars in spending by Chinese tourists was was basically cut down to a few tens of billions. It was a, a trickle. And by the summer of this year, it could be back up to about 50% of its pre-crisis levels. So that will deliver a huge boost to the tourism sectors of places like Cambodia, for instance, or Laos or Hong Kong, or indeed the obvious destinations in Europe and the luxury brands that do so much business there. We're also seeing the rebound effect in commodity markets. So both um, copper and steel um, are off their lows, which they hit in the summer of 2022 amidst the sort of fear, I mean, in the aftermath of the Shanghai lockdown. So major rebounds there. Uh, Iron ore is up. Iron ore is up 50% since the summer. A really dramatic rise. And that, I think, points to the the ambiguity of this story, because as the Chinese economy rebounds, and especially if it rebounds hard in the heavy industrial sector, tourism is one thing, that's a net gain for Europe on a huge scale. But if the Chinese heavy industrial sector rebounds, then what this does is to surge energy demand. In 2021, it surged so rapidly that the Chinese energy system came pretty close to collapse. There were blackouts, they had to ration power. And when that happens, what the Chinese do is to go shopping for energy. And then all of a sudden, the Chinese appear in the gas market. They can't obviously get it through pipelines because there aren't any, not enough. The Russians are building them now, but it'll be too slow. So where do they go? They go into the famous LNG market, liquefied natural gas. And that's where the Europeans have been desperately buying their supplies. So if China re-enters the East Asian LNG market, that is extremely bad news for Europe um, because it was, the, as it were, the, the missing Chinese demand for LNG in 2022 that created more or less ton for ton the space for the Europeans to buy LNG and fill up their storage tanks. Just very briefly on the tourism point, I feel like this is not sufficiently appreciated. I mean, the zero COVID policy essentially was de facto keeping Chinese people at home. I mean, it wasn't officially forbidding people from leaving the country, but it was essentially preventing them from leaving because they couldn't get back in. Is that basically how that that worked? Yeah, 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 exactly. And and there were also restrictions on people leaving, so it was difficult for people to get passports and so on. But but all of Mm. that's lifted now, so there's a huge boom going on in... um, Southeast Asia, and in Hong Kong. We'll be right back with more about China and COVID.
Hi, this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. So there's something I've been meaning to get off my chest, and it has to do with uh, Little League. My son is on a uh, Little League baseball team here in Berlin, and the coach is... He's great. He's extremely devoted to the games, the practices. He also expects a lot of devotion from the parents, and I often end up feeling like I'm dropping the ball, uh, you know, not literally, but, you know, figuratively in terms of getting my son to practice on time, making sure he's prepared for practices, etc. And uh, I've been called out a few times. No, I've been more than a few times. Uh, pretty regularly, I am called out by this coach in, 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 in the form of text messages uh, admonishing me. And I've been meaning to tell the coach that, you know, life is busy and I can't always uh, hold up my end of the bargain and, 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 and it would be helpful if he would not be so pushy about everything. But I do not say that yet. Instead, I carry it around in my chest and this becomes a stressor. Uh, maybe you all have stressors of your own kind that you're carrying around, big or small. What we all should know is that if we keep these stressors bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively in all sorts of ways. And that is where therapy comes in. Therapy can be a safe space to get things off your chest. You can figure out uh, how to work through whatever it is that's weighing you down. And that's just skimming the surface of what therapy can do. And it isn't just for those who have experienced major trauma. It's for everyone, whether you have a baseball coach in your life you've been meaning to talk to, or another loved one. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online. It is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Visit betterhelp.com slash ones twos today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash ones twos. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Okay, we're back with our discussion on China and COVID. Adam, looking back over these past three years, I'm curious how China's role in the global economy has changed if at all, I mean, as a result of this pandemic and its original kind of zero COVID policy response to it. I mean, you mentioned the kind of problems that were introduced into supply chains, how that played a role in producing inflation. Is China overall a less trusted trading partner now? And if not that, at least a sort of less considered a less predictable economic actor than it was before all of this. And, and maybe I guess also on the political side is it seen as a less trusted political actor you know it's been accused of hoarding information at the outset of the pandemic it seems to be sort of you know not being straightforward about the pandemic right now and how it's spreading across the country so yeah how has overall its role in global politics and economics changed I don't think there's much doubt that it's been terrible for China's reputation abroad, which is, of course, a matter very much in the eyes of the, the beholders, um, notably in you know the, the block that you might think of as the block that's gathered around the United States. So this includes Australia, South Korea, Japan, Europe, and really starting from the you know sort of face mask diplomacy of 2020, um, China's stock has sunk very, very dramatically um, across global public opinion. But that segment of it, so if you ask in Latin America and Africa, it's a rather different story. Um, but in all of those places, and they're very, very economically significant, um, 
it's also not just simply a matter of what you think of China, but what you know the American authorities think of China. And if the American authorities engage in quite aggressive sanctioning actions against China, then like it or not, you have a hard time um, thinking about making investments uh, or engaging in contact with China. I mean, from my university, I get an email now periodically, quite regularly, listing the number, listing essentially all of the major Chinese universities. And I'm required to notify the, the general counsel of the university if I engage in any kind of you know, intellectual contact, let alone joint research with with all of China's major universities. So this, of course, has a chilling effect. There's no doubt at all. And if you look at financial flows into China, so so-called portfolio investment purchases of Chinese assets, they went negative for a time in the first uh, quarter or so of 2022. So there was actually money coming out of China. But what's very interesting is if you if you contrast portfolio investments, so relatively easy come, easy go, buying of financial assets with foreign direct investment, so investment in factories on the ground in China, you get a very, very different picture. And that's essentially just a continuous increase from record to record. So 2021 was more than 2020, 2022 was more than 2021 and by large margins and we're talking about you know in the order of about 140 billion dollars went into china in foreign direct investment just up to august um 2022 and we see this it's interesting um it's coming from lots of different directions but but germany um which you and i obviously have a both of us have a great interest in has been particularly notable in this respect it's quite hard in fact to think of a single german industrial company which in the last 12 months has not made an, a, an announcement of further large-scale investment in china it's quite counterintuitive given the mood in the united states on on, on an issue like this um, but BASF, Siemens, Bosch, all of the German car companies are doubling down on their already substantial investments in China. They regard themselves to be underweight China assets. So there's a real kind of counterflow here. And in certain key markets, and as China recovers from COVID, as one perhaps hopes it will do, um, this tension, I think, will get more and more pronounced because the politics are going in one way and the foreign direct investment is going in another direction. To clarify, I mean, what would account for that difference between investing in financial assets or foreign direct investment? I mean, what's behind the kind of move away from those financial investments exactly? I mean, that's also private capital making those decisions, right? But there are different things you can buy. So, I mean, property developers, for instance, in China were major issuers of bonds. And those were the sorts of things that foreign investors would, believe it or not, actually pile into until very, very recently, supposedly smart money in the West, big smart money in the West was holding substantial chunks of Evergrande debt. And some of them are stuck holding it. I mean, we're talking very serious, mm. heavy hitting names. And and they go into that because you want, you know, you want exposure to China. You're not too fussy about how you get that exposure. So you buy the bonds of the firms which issue enough bonds. Um, so, and then when the story turns, that money is easy, is easy to leave as well. Whereas the logic of BASF putting money in is simply, well, where do we expect growth in the global chemicals industry and plastics industry? Well, you know, it's not going to be in Europe, is it? Um, so it's clearly going to be in China. If you're in the automotive business, you know, and you're, you're looking at the future of electric mobility and EVs, 
you have to be in China. It's it's absolutely the core of the future、mm. of that industry. That's where the things are sold. That's where you're competing head on with the major Chinese manufacturers. That's where the supply chain is because the battery producers are all there. I mean, and it's true of not just German companies. GM, for instance, is up to its neck in the Chinese market as well.、Um, so that's that's the difference. I think it's really quite two rather distinct logics. Yeah, that there's a different expression of、yeah. trust in those different、yeah. kinds of investments. Finally, I guess to shift away from China for a moment, I wanted to ask about something that President Joe Biden said back in September 2022. He declared just outright that the pandemic was over.、Um, we're now, as I said, three years in. I don't know if there's anyone with that actual responsibility to declare the pandemic to be over, but Biden took it upon himself to say so. So, curious, what you think? Was he right? I think clearly not. I mean, and it's not a matter of scoring cheap points. I think it's rather more、um, using. I because I think many of us feel it's over, right? And because we want it to be over, and we want to get on with our lives. And in many respects, you could say that it is over. As far as I think the vast majority of the population of the United States and Europe is concerned, we carry on as though it's not really an issue. And we make that mistake, right, of, of that initial move of saying, "Well, moving away from China." But, I mean, you know, if there's one thing this pandemic has taught us: you can't move away from China. If tens of millions of people are getting infected every single day with a disease in China, and furthermore, all travel restrictions have been lifted, it really, really matters.、Um, so it's, it's.、Mm. I think, I think, you know, this is for me another test case of our ability to, in fact, encompass the reality of the fact that we're all totally entangled with each other. And the Chinese have finally come to realise this by ending zero COVID, because in the face of Omicron, they just couldn't make it work. And now, in a sense, what you know, I wanted to do this segment in part because I just have a sense that folks in the West, in Europe, in the United States, you know, at Davos right now, are not taking seriously enough this drama. I mean, I think the rate of infection in China in December. Was probably the most rapid spread of a disease ever in history, because you had 1.4 billion people densely packed, tightly linked together, essentially immunonaive in the face of a disease, you know, Omicron, which was really ready to go, and、hmm. it just ripped through Chinese society. I mean, so the upside from their point of view is that it will indeed pass through in a matter of two to three months. But the risk of that, of course, is that it spawns some sort of dangerous new variant, and and that's not happened so far. And it's not necessarily the ideal incubator for that, because really, what you want there is people who are struggling with partial immunity and so on. But in any case, it's not good news. And furthermore, we also know at the same time that a new variant of COVID incubated in the West,、uh, you know, the so-called XBB one five, the Kraken variant, is spreading very, very rapidly in the West right now. I mean, the numbers are, are quite significant. There, as of January tenth, there were sixty-seven thousand new cases reported in the United States every day, with a test positivity rate of fifteen percent. And we all know that if your tests are yielding a fifteen percent positivity rate, you're basically it's basically out of control. And most of the testing is now being done privately and not being reported. So there are just short of five hundred deaths per day in the United States as of January tenth. And the hospitalisation rate has increased by seventeen percent over the last two weeks, and that's in the face of this new variant. Now, the new variant is super infectious by all accounts and overwhelms any kind of immunity that we currently have because it's it has mutated to such an extent. It may, in its symptoms, be more like a cold than flu. But what this is telling us is that this disease is not done with this yet and is continuing 
to mutate. And in the background, not to alarm people, but we are also facing the most serious global pandemic of avian flu that we have faced in a very long time. And if you remember back to the early 2000s, avian flu was the true horror scenario because in the instances in which it has crossed to the human population, it's been extremely lethal. What we've never had is an avian flu which becomes transmissible between people. But the birds to human transmission was 60 to 70% lethal in Hong Kong when it happened. So, you know, that was the nightmare of the early 2000s. That's when the whole sort of global pandemic fear got going. And we are right now in the middle of a pandemic which has spread both to the wild bird population and the domesticated, you know, the giant, highly concentrated chicken um, farm populations. And millions of birds are being culled almost you know weekly right now around the world as outbreaks spread so this i mean if you know if you ask me what my like tail risks for 2023 is it's still the pandemic and is why i keep banging the drum for this concept of polycrisis as well because you know there are bits of this which are systemically interrelated you know the financial system the inflation the federal reserve sticking interest rates up and there are bits which are you know, sort of predictable long-term type risks for much of the world anyway, which is the climate crisis. And then there were these two outside risks, which are, you know, Putin's aggression against Ukraine and this shooting war that we are dealing with in Europe. And on the other hand, the pandemic, which is, you see, even if it is, even if we get lucky and 2023 yields nothing in terms of disaster, a rational, I think, preparation for the year ahead includes contingency planning for the eventuality of another really serious turn in this disease. And that state of mind, that consciousness, I mean, you can get away from it by forgetting, hmm. but if you if you do, you just expose yourself to the risk of being blindsided again. And I think that that the very fact that we face that dilemma to me marks out the fact that at some deeper level, you know, it can't really be over. And it probably is in some sense better that it isn't. It becomes more endemic as the as the epidemiologists say, when it becomes something that we in future have to reckon with. I mean, on the other hand, you can't blame Biden for not, I guess, evoking the poly crisis, right? I mean, no, 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 come down. No, no, no. I mean, he just, but he, I mean, why make that declaration? I mean, it's, it's, it's unnecessary. It's not, no, there's no, there's no epidemiologist in the world who will agree with you. Um, yeah, he was. He was, you know, he was honest enough to go on to say we're still working at it, and he was paying homage to the healthcare workers who have been struggling with this, and for whom, of course, the pandemic has never ended. And you can see why a president might want, you know, to claim credit ahead of the midterms and everything else. But it's also giving hostages to fortune, um, so it's taking a considerable risk, I think. Mm. Well, I know you didn't want to alarm people, but you may have, nevertheless, a little bit there with pointing out the new variants that are completely evading all of our existing immunity. But we will leave the conversation there for now. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It is produced by Laura Rossbrow Tellum and Rob Sachs. Our social media manager is Claudia Tady. The executive editor of FP Podcasts is Dan Efron. This show is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested not just in Adam Tooze, but news and analysis from around the world, consider subscribing. Ones and Twos listeners even get a 15% discount. Just go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and use the promo code 
Toos at checkout. That is T-O-O-Z-E. And listeners, as always, we love hearing your feedback. You can send us voice messages on the Ones and Twos homepage on foreignpolicy.com, or you can email us, podcasts at foreignpolicy.com, or tweet us. That's at Ones and Twos Pod. Thanks very much for listening, and we will see you back in your feed next week. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. 
Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador. Coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.